Hello? Hi, Ryan. This is Jonah McKeown from Catholic News Agency. Oh, what's going on? Not much. How are things with you? How are things with me? Uh, things are pretty well. Uh, if you listen yeah, to this show, well, yeah. you might recognize the voice on the other end of the line. Yeah, I, I it's Ryan Prasad, a guy in his late 20s from Vancouver. We actually did a whole episode about him a while back. Since we last talked to you, what have you been up to? How, how have things changed? So I've been doing RCI ministry, and then at the Christian Recovery House, mm-hmm. you know, I was really busy in the summertime, actually, with work, and I was, like, you know, trying to develop a career for myself, which is uh, becoming a mobile crane operator. Yeah. And I've had to go through a lot of, like, reject, uh, a lot of failures. Like, I failed four times, and it's just been a process of me trying to get this right and get this down, and, oh, man. you know, yeah. I had Just to, like, a couple years ago, Ryan was a drug dealer. You know, and was arrested and released on bail in 2016. Long story short, he converted to Catholicism before going to prison. After serving just six months, he's now out on parole. I think getting out of jail is something that I'd never touched up on my last interview because that was more about my conversion experience. It was yeah. like the biggest thing was like dealing with the insecurities that I had going into uh, back into the faith community. Like most young adults, myself included, Ryan wants to find a community. He's been helping out with RCIA class at his parish, as well as the Christian Recovery House that helped him so much before he went to jail. Trying to expand my support group and meeting new people, people my age, and I think that was really hard for me. Like, you know, at the, on the surface level, like, you know, I seemed like I was, like, very put together and mm-hmm. kind of friendly and open and all that kind of stuff. But inside, I was just so insecure because of the last, like, just because of how my life has been compared to a lot of other people. My situation is a little bit more rare because in my situation it was like I was able to build a, a community in the in the faith community before I went to jail. You know, I think that was the biggest thing too is to know that people on the outside were really praying for me. And I think that whole prayer that they did for me, like throughout the whole process for things to work out the way it did for me, was like the best thing that happened to me. Ryan's a positive guy, you can probably tell. But he's candid about how tough it's been since he left prison. You know, I had to learn in the process of, like, how to fail and, like, you know, all the credit I get for how much I change and stuff like that when it comes to, like, you know, like, moving along in the career sense of my life. Like, you know, I'm struggling, like, so hard in this sense. I was sliding into depressions and feeling these insecurities. And there was times where I wish I was back in jail. Like, I just had a hard time. I wasn't emotionally mature. If it hadn't been for the people helping him on the outside... Supporting him in his faith could have been far worse. He's surrounded by people that follow the faith that, you know, pray with me and really encourage me. And, you know, they remind me, like, you know, you've been through way harder stuff in life than this. Like, you know, you can keep pushing, you can keep trying, right? If I didn't get parole, I would have only been released two days ago. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, I would have only been released two days ago. And that's only if I stayed out of fights and stayed out of trouble. Yeah. So all this extra time that I got... You know, it was because of the power of prayer and God working and the community working. So I, I don't think I, I think I don't think I like appreciate that enough. It's like the fact that I could have still been in jail up until a couple of days ago if I didn't really seek God wholeheartedly. If I didn't really have the community praying for me. If I didn't really have the people visiting me. I think that's the biggest thing that I really take for granted is like you know, they, God was sovereign and God was in control throughout the whole time and really helping me through this. Ministry to prisoners is tough. I wouldn't necessarily know since I haven't actually done it, but this week on the podcast, 
We'll talk to men who, like Ryan, have benefited from prison ministry. A couple of guys who stepped way out of their comfort zone to engage in prison ministry where they live. And also a man who's made it his mission in life to help men coming out of prison. Well, thank you, Ryan, and, and God bless. It was great to talk to you again. Yeah, God bless you too. It was really nice talking to you. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right, bye. I'm your host, Jonah McKeown. Stay tuned. You've reached the CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. Welcome to CNA Newsroom. I remember being, you know, you're nervous to knowing that you're going to be inside the walls for the whole day. There's no, there's no leaving. Brandon McGinley works for EWTN Publishing in Pittsburgh. I had wanted to do some kind of corporate work of mercy, you know, in a, in a, in a. Uh, organized way for some time, but it, it just nothing had ever really jumped out at me as, as really as really feeling like, like it was something I was really called to. Brandon got invited to a retreat at Somerset Prison in Pennsylvania. Literally the most controlled environment you can imagine in the prison. Like this, this, was, this was appealing to me. It all came together and I felt like, you know, I was being really nudged towards accepting the invitation. Going in that first time, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know how I was going to be able to relate to them. I didn't know if I was going to feel like I could treat them in in the way that I, I that was the whole point. I wanted to I wanted to to, to 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 treat them in that in that kind of deep in that human way as as actual human beings and not as quasi animals as they're treated most of the time. That was the whole draw. But saying that and doing it are two different things. The most important things are the personal connections that that you make treating them like human beings, using their first names instead of their last names, shaking their hands, but treating them not as if we suspect them. You know, it's, it's, it's an intrinsically dehumanizing environment. There's no obvious way to fix it. You can make it better, but it's never going to be, it's never going to be a happy place. It's never going to be a, it's never going to be a peaceful place. But that's the most spiritually exhilarating thing about it is seeing men who are treated, like I said, as quasi-animals, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, except for these moments, except, except at Mass, which they are able to go to weekly. Of course, it can take a while to break through to some of the inmates and get them to open up. And for some, it never happens. You know, a certain percent of the people who are there are, are not going to be there for entirely genuine reasons. But even they sometimes have breakthroughs. Brandon's not the only one I talked to who's experienced a retreat like this. Hello, this is Michael Gomer Gormley. You may know Gomer from a podcast called Catching Foxes. As well as the founder and creative director of layevangelist.com, a website seen by dozens. Gomer's been going on retreats at prisons in Texas, where he lives, for a number of years. Basically, a guy came into my office named Jerry. He's an amazing uh, parishioner at our parish. He... Vaughn told me that I was going to do this ministry. There's a ministry called the Colby Prison Ministries, and that's what they do. Like Brandon, Gomer was pretty uncomfortable with the idea of prison ministry at first. I was like, I don't know. See, you got to understand, I'm a chubby little homeschooler theology major from the burbs. Like, 
None of this was in my purview. I mean, I've picked up my brother a couple times from the local jail when he was out on bail, but that's about it. So I went, I took the training, and it seemed fine. I was in a nice prison. Men are walking all around. The inmates, the incarcerated, walking all around. It's no big deal. And then uh, the week before, I found out that I'm not going to a G1 prison that I got trained in. I'm going to a maximum security gladiator unit for violent offenders who are gang affiliated. And I said, Jerry, listen, I'm not going to lie. I'm scared. I'm scared to go. So I'm trying to do the millennial thing where you commit to something and then back out at the last minute. I just was I just was honest and I was like, I'm scared. I don't really want to do this. I've never I don't have any experience. And he's like, oh, you'll be fine. He got up and left. And then the next day I saw him after daily mass. He stopped into my office and he said, Hey, I, I went to the Ferguson unit in preparation for the retreat because I go on every Monday and I told all the men, all the incarcerated men there, how scared you are of them. Now, I don't know if you know anything about prison ministry, but that's like the worst thing imaginable. So I was like, Jerry, what? And he's like, yeah, I told them. And they're like, you tell your buddy Gomer. And I was like, you told them my name. <laughs> There's 30 of us going. It could have been any of the other guys. And they said, you go tell your buddy Gomer that um, we're a bunch of murderers, rapists, and gangbangers. And we need the mercy of Jesus Christ just as much as anyone at his parish. And I was like, well, I was not at all expecting that answer. Two hours into the actual retreat, it was the most, I was shocked at how mundane everything was. Yeah, all these men were dressed in the same color and clothing, but there were guys who were super talkative, guys who were disengaged, guys who were listening and quiet, guys who were dominating the conversation and everyone in between, just like a normal men's retreat. And it was, it was that. I mean, yeah, there were some crazy stories that kind of got mixed in there, but by and large, it was uh, the men be quickly became very normal in my eyes from what they the labels that they were beforehand. One of the things that is most remarkable is how quickly trust grows when you're so trust starved. And it, it totally changed. It totally changed how I do everything in my life, from being a dad to um, teaching my faith and living as a witness in evangelization. I mean, it, it, it turbocharged everything because you see grace working right in front of your eyes. What we'll have are uh, a series of talks given by the retreat members, for the retreat team members. Um, and, um, and, and each, each weekend long retreat is on a theme of some kind. Sometimes you only have two hour blocks. Sometimes you'll have them for four hour blocks and, and each comes with its own challenges. You either squeeze in, you either squeeze in um, uh, a lot of material into a small amount of time, or you have them for so long you run out of things to do. So again, I'm in a violent unit. Every single one of the, these men, with one exception, had their father figure was a monster. He either neglected, sexually, physically abused them, was a horrible person. One guy was the exception. He said, I had a great dad. And I said, tell me about him. He said, well, there's not a lot to tell. He died when I was 12. Every one of these men joined gangs because if they didn't have a father, they needed brothers. People on a given Colby retreat, it was about 80% are not are non-Catholic. And out of that 80%, a significant majority are fiercely anti-Catholic, like straight up bigoted. Um, on top of that, a large number of Latino inmates who are predominantly Spanish speaking were raised Catholic, and if they are religious, are typically extremely anti-Catholic. You, you run into Satanism, you run into other forms of anti-Catholicism, 
Um, and so you have to be on your guard too. Um, it's still prison. And, 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 and while these ministries are so important to healing the brokenness that we find there, um, there's a lot of unhealed brokenness that is manifesting itself in, in very destructive ways. The, the spiritual warfare going on in, in prison on a day-to-day basis is, is severe. And um, a lot of what you're doing is stealing the resolve of the men who are fighting those battles day-to-day in prison, you know, who carry their rosary with them. The best part of any of the retreats, they said, is when the men have the opportunity to go to confession and adoration. Saturday evening is always my favorite part of the whole thing. Um, because on Saturday evening after dinner, um, there's usually either no talk or just one talk, depending on the schedule. And then we break, go to the chapel and have um, an hour of adoration and benediction. And during that time, confession is available, which, you know, even though confession is available, often the whole atmosphere of the retreat often encourages men to go who haven't gone in some time. Um, so you have that going on have the Blessed Sacrament exposed. For me, that's the highlight. And then the next day is Sunday. And um, there may be one more talk, but usually it's just wrap up stuff. You know, everyone kind of gives a little testimony about how the week, how the weekend affected them. And then we, um, then we break for mass, which kind of puts the seal on it. You know, especially if you have guys who've just come back to confession, then you see them go up for communion and it's very, it's, it's really lovely. It's really lovely. So there is one person who I did not meet in prison only met after he was out. He was convicted of second-degree murder in um, the 1970s. The conviction was, 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 was pretty dodgy to begin with. He was barely involved in the crime, and I think everyone knew it, but they made, a, they made an example of it. And even so, even though he had every reason to, uh, to kind of lash out, uh, he actually had a completely spotless 40-year record in prison, not a single citation against him. He uh, was raised Catholic, returned to the faith in prison, and was a member of uh, the ministry teams and went to these retreats, you know, literally religiously. And now he's out and active in his parish. Every single story is insane, amazing, sad, heartrending. I got permission from this one guy to share his story. First guy's testimony essentially said, I remember when my father left me forever. From that day onward, I had such hate in my heart for my father. He said, but I didn't know it. I grew up and I joined a white supremacist gang. And he said, and I hated blacks and I hated Mexicans. And he looks around the room and he said, and I've gotten in fights with some of you solely because you're black or Mexican in this room. And he said, and it was on this retreat one year ago where I encountered the love of Jesus Christ in my life. And I forgave my father because I realized on that retreat I didn't hate blacks. I didn't hate Mexicans. I, didn't, I don't even know you. He said, I don't hate you. I hated my father. And I was taking all that anger and rage and just aiming it at everyone around me. And he said, so I forgave my father on that retreat. And on this retreat, I'm asking, will you forgive me? And a guy sitting in the front, right, African-American gentleman, he stood up, walked right up to that dude and gave him a hug. And you could have heard a pin drop and the whole, pl- I mean, immediately these guys are crying, people are applauding. And this was the first talk of the retreat. And I was like, what, what did we have left? <laughs> like, what? this is amazing. 
The whole rest of the retreat was like that, stories like that. When we come back, some inmates are able to build a faith community while in prison, but what about when they get out? I spent 20 years in prison and I had to go through that process myself. You're trying to reacclimate to society and all of that can occupy your time and your mind to such a degree that you're not really focusing on the real needs. Stay tuned. Hi everyone, this is Christine Yourcell. I'm one of CNA's DC correspondents. Unlike my boss, Ed Condon, I like many things. Bagels, cats, lighthouses, brightly patterned dresses, drinking rosé, going to Disney World, binging true crime shows until I fall asleep, and also trolling my colleagues. If you enjoy listening to CNA Newsroom and CNA Editor's Desk, you can subscribe to both shows and get them delivered straight to your phone as soon as they're posted. Just search on your favorite podcast app for CNA Newsroom, tap the subscribe button, and then do the same for CNA Editor's Desk. Both shows are available on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and many more places where podcasts can be found. And now, back to the episode. Much of the experience depends on the um, depends on the, the correctional officers on staff and how <laughs> chill they are or how not chill they are. Gomer realized that as much as the prisoners need people to minister to them and pray for them, the people that also needed some TLC were the guards. When you walk into these prisons, you realize you're going to serve, especially in my case, violent offenders many of whom, if they're released, might, you know, they're, they're of the population where there's a high recidivism rate. Oftentimes, prison guards look at us with, or, or they can have a tendency to look at us with suspicion, like, why are you serving these people? They're the worst. And on top of that, it's, uh, you know, look at us, like, no one is serving us, and we're the good guys. So I just said, well, well, what can I do? I, like, I've committed my life to serving these prisoners. How can I still express to these guards, like, I see you, I hear you, I love you, I'm praying for you, even though I can't actually do ministry to serve them? And so the only thing I knew to do is, because I'm a wordy guy, is I just wrote an article, uh, essentially an open letter to the corrections officers of the Ferguson, and I sent it to the warden, I sent it to the um, the, the men there and women there, and uh, they ended up publishing it about two or three months later in their monthly bulletin. And the only reason why I knew that they published it, I never heard a word from you know the official office staff or whatever. Um, but about two months later, three months later, all these moms of the corrections officers started writing me letters. And it was so beautiful. You have these moms who are like, I love Jesus Christ. He's the center of my life. And I'm so thankful that my son has a good and stable job. But I pray for him every day because it's so horrible and all this stuff. And he gets paid nothing to put his life on the line and all this stuff. And to read your words, you had me in tears. I have it framed in my kitchen and stuff like that. So um, you begin to see that um, that in, in, in some places the chaplaincy is hated by the guards in other places um there, there's just a, a hostility or an antagonism or a like a resentment that's there 
As I said, I spent 20 years in prison and I had to go through that process myself. This is James Bloom. Like Ryan, he had a lot of anxiety when he got released from prison. Obviously, you're, you know, you're, you're dealing with trying to find a job, you're trying to find uh, transportation, you're trying to reacclimate to society. It's been, for myself, it was 20 years. And, and for many men and women, it's been a very long time since they've been in society. So everything's changed. The world is moving a lot faster. And at the same time, you're trying to follow the rules that parole sets out for you. There's, there's a lot of restrictions. And so that's hampering your ability to move forward as well, but you're trying to be compliant with that. The guys I talked to told me it's tough for any former inmate to reintegrate into society, no matter how much they've reformed their life in prison. For whatever reason, at Somerset Prison, um, there's a, a, a uh, overabundance or a disproportionate number of sex offenders. I know of at least one case, he's released, he's released from prison could not be involved in a parish because he's a sex offender. And so you have guys who were who are actually more able to find communities of faith in prison than out of prison. And I don't know, there's no obvious solution. There's no obvious because obviously, you know, we're extremely vigilant about sex offender stuff. We go through the amount of paperwork you have to go through to, to, to you know, just to do anything at a parish is incredible. And it blocks out people. They you know, can't sing in a choir, can't do anything. You don't want to be naive about it, but there is a sense in which, you know, these are our lepers. You know, they're untouchable. This difficulty in reintegrating into society is the focus of the ministry that James runs in Denver. So what we're hoping to do at my father's house is to provide for some of those more basic needs, to, to provide the place that a man needs to live already furnished and, and with the things that he needs to help him find a job so that he can focus on these higher level needs and be more successful. Um, because th those are really the things that are going to help him to be successful. Right now, there are four guys living at the house. All of those men are doing very well. Uh, none have returned to prison for a new crime. They're, not only are they moving forward and finding good jobs, they're, they are finding places to live as they move out, but they're reconnecting with family reconnecting with their, maybe with their wives, with their kids, with their parents, their siblings. And so they're, they're finding new ways to live and exist in this world. And it's an exciting time for them. The demand, he said, is greater than the supply. We're hoping certainly to provide more housing. I get letters every single day. I get about uh, between five and 10 letters a week. Just today, I got two more letters. The men that write to me say that, uh, that they need a place to go. So many of them have already been offered parole by the parole board. They're ready to go, but they don't have a place to live. And the parole board won't let them out as long as they don't have a place to live. They won't let them out homeless. And so they sit in prison and they languish until they can find an address to move to. Since James knows firsthand what it's like to try and rebuild your life after prison, he knows that what the guys really need is relationship. And they need help finding that. And what I found is that when men get out of prison, primarily what they need is not a job or a house or the, the sort of normal things that people would think they need, but really what they need is social interaction. They need uh, love. Uh, for me, the, the motivation for creating my father's house is religious. It, it has to do with my faith. I also write letters, uh, personal letters back and forth with the men. Last year, I wrote over 170 letters this year, I'm well over that already, and the year's not even over. Just entering into conversation and a relationship with the men, 
trying to um, show them, again, the love of Christ. The idea of prison ministry may still seem a bit outside your comfort zone, and that's okay. But when considering how to practice the corporal works of mercy, Brandon and Gomer both suggested keeping your parish or diocesan prison ministry in mind. On top of your donation dollars to all your different nonprofits and charities and churches and stuff, really keep an eye to prison ministries. The majority of people are leaving the Catholic faith either for an anti-Catholic fundamentalist Christian faith or for Islam. Um, Islam is mostly big in the jails, not the prisons. Um, and it, we're, we're just losing people because we have zero, we, we almost have zero presence in jails. And it's just shocking. It's just shocking. You know, at, at the end of um, at the end of Saturday, we had we had talks all day. We've been with the men all day. We get out. But remember the first time, even when I was just in for the afternoon, I was just in Pittsburgh for one afternoon. I remember the feeling of freedom when I got out. I had only been in there for a few hours, but just getting in my car and driving, it felt like I hadn't felt driving in a long time. It was so strange to be able to just go where I wanted. On the one hand, you feel you feel a little bit. You feel bad, you know, you're, you're, you're able to enjoy these things. But you also enjoy them more than you have in a long time because you realize that the men in prison never get that. And to the extent they do it, that's what we're providing. That's, we're providing the opportunity for them finally to decompress, finally to be able to speak freely. It's one of the corporal works of mercy, visit the imprisoned. So, um, yeah, people, come on. It's easier than you think, and it's more rewarding than you'll ever possibly imagine. That's our show for this week. Special thanks to Brandon and James for joining us. And to Gomer, be sure to check out his podcast called Catching Foxes. He and Luke are good friends of CNA. Thanks to Ryan for taking the time to join us on the podcast once again. And be sure to check out episode 21 of CNA Newsroom, where our producer Kate Oliveira devotes the whole show to Ryan's conversion. Seriously, check it out. It's really a powerful story. CNA Newsroom is produced by Kate Oliveira and me, and is normally hosted by J.D. Flynn, although for a couple weeks, J.D. is in Rome for the Synod on the Amazon. Be sure to check out his and Ed Condon's analysis of the Synod so far on last week's episode of CNA Editor's Desk, our companion podcast. That's it, I think. We'll be back next week. Until then, I'm Jonah McKeown. <laughs>